electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, escalating tensions between President Trump and social media, a series of midnight tweets, one afternoon signature, and protests in Minneapolis. A former White House chief technology officer offers a strategy for moving past the controversy. The debate about is Twitter right or is Facebook wrong may be a little bit off from the broader conversation. Should the community reach consensus with stakeholder input so that the government itself doesn't have to micromanage the industry. And Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan on reopening the economy and recovery post-pandemic. You're seeing us come out of the... Uh, you know, out of the depths of where we were in April, and that's due to two things. One is just people are starting to spend more money as the stimulus hits generally, and at the impact of the opening of various economies. It's Friday, May 29th, 2020. Longest four-day week ever. No kidding. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. A lot else happening in the world and a lot that we are focusing on. And Andrew, I'll send it over to you. Okay, thanks, Becky. Protests in Minneapolis over the death of George Floyd uh, escalating. It happened last night. The focus, the police precinct where four officers were based uh, who were fired after Floyd died in their custody. That happened on Monday. Demonstrators pushed down temporary fencing and occupied property at the precinct and Fires burned on both sides of the building. Officers fired tear gas uh, from the ground and a rooftop. Officials said the building was cleared of staff shortly after 10 p.m. local time, and protesters forcibly entered the building and ignited several fires. Now, meantime, this is turning into uh, more than uh, a local story. This is becoming a national story and a public policy story. President Trump tweeting about the violence just before 1 a.m. Eastern time. And one of those tweets was flagged by Twitter. This time, Twitter says the second part of a two-part tweet violated the company's rules about glorifying violence. But Twitter determined that uh, it may be in the public's interest for that tweet to remain accessible. Here's what the president said. He said, I can't stand back and watch this happen to a great American city, Minneapolis. A total lack of leadership, either the very Weak radical left mayor Jacob Frey, get his act together and bring the city under control, or I will send in the National Guard and get the job done right. These thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd, and I won't let that happen. Just spoke to Governor Tim Waltz and told him that the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty, uh, and we will assume control. But when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Thank you, exclamation point. Twitter explained that the last line violated its policy based on the historical context, its connection to violence and the risk that it could inspire similar actions today. Yesterday, President Trump signed an executive order seeking to limit, of course, the broad legal protection that federal law provides to social media and other online platforms. We talked about it. Uh, It seeks to make it easier for regulators to hold Twitter and Facebook liable if they are deemed to be unfairly curbing user speech. And we had that uh, conversation yesterday with Mark Zuckerberg about all of that and and where these social media 
companies come down on these things and when they're going to be stepping in or not. And here we are. And uh, I don't envy Twitter. Here I, don't en- I don't envy any of them. And, and <laughs> you heard Zuckerberg told you, he's like, <laughs> we don't want to, you know, who would want that responsibility? He doesn't want it either. That's, that's not, but, but how do you well, separate yourself from it when you're, when you're Facebook or Twitter? It's just really tough. It's really tough. Yeah. Look, and, and this has been a situation where for years and years they've been held to a different standard than other media. Um, obviously, when you are a newspaper or a, a radio station or a television station, it's much easier to have some control over the voices that are going out there. But when you have millions of people that each have their own platform, it's very mm-hmm. difficult to try and go through and monitor that. But the question is, has been all along, are they publishers or right. are they simply bulletin boards? Right. And once you take actions and start um, editing things, then that puts you in the position position of saying, yes, you are a publisher in that sense. And then you can and, and really so do whatever you, then you can really do whatever you want as we, <laughs> no, I'm kidding, as we, <laughs> as we now have seen with, uh, with, with newspapers, yeah. but, but, um, it's that one provision that gives them so much leeway that, that people want to, uh, they want to mess with that, you know, that allows them a lot of leeway on, on what to, to censor and what, this is not going to end. And you, you know, you know President Trump, he's going to push it. You know he's going to, and his supporters are going to see everything now as censorship and just feeding into what he wants to do in terms of controlling um, whether they, right. they are. Well, it, so I just know that this is, I don't know how this ends well for anybody. Do you? The question I, I was going to ask is. The, no, go ahead. No, the only question I was going to ask is, is, is. If you don't, if it, if it's not being censored, meaning if you don't, if the platforms are not taking this stuff down, but are adding other information, call it a fact check, call it related information, other information, how the public views that, how candidates or others view that, I think that might actually become such a regular thing, potentially depending on how these algorithms work, that you're going to see it so much across the board that maybe it, it loses its meaning. But I, I imagine you might start seeing these sort of related items or fact check items or other things that, that add some kind of extra piece of information. Um, and I, I don't know how the public is going to view that. I, I thought about uh, the question. I, I thought I, it, just as well, a taking it to just an insane conclusion, just shutting this horrible thing down that I see right here. It's up right now. And um, there could be some merit to that. Uh, not really. And, but the last couple of days, I mean, Twitter is, uh, I get a lot out of it, though. A lot of, uh, it's a news feed, and you do think about things. Yeah. You just, uh, you certainly need to take it with a grain of salt. I don't think you ought to be watching it all day long, uh, especially in, in certain instances. But <laughs> Definitely um, not healthy. No. The, I, I don't the, think question, it is. the question I have on this is what what does Congress do now? Because this this actually puts a lot of Democrats in a difficult position. To this point, it had been a very bipartisan move to try and, and, and want to regulate both Facebook, Twitter, any of these other uh, big social media companies. They, they had been in the crosshairs from Congress all along. But now that the president has taken and signed this executive order and really stepped things up, you just wonder what their response to that is going to be, um, yeah. because I'm guessing they're going to want to get in in some way, shape, or form, but it has now become so politicized that I wonder if it is still a bipartisan issue or if there are, are, are different divides that are kind of to, starting to build in Congress as a result. Joining us to talk about this and so much more is Anish Chopra, is the former White House chief technology officer under President Obama and current president of Care Journey, a health care analytics firm. And uh, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Um, we're here. 
It's happening. It's uh, it's happening, frankly, in real time. Um, What do you think should happen? I mean, it's it's interesting because in a way it's it's become a bipartisan issue and in a way maybe it's it's diverging in other ways. Well, I think what we're seeing here are two really fundamental debates that are happening in Washington. Obviously, we're in a political uh, season and we are uh, witnessing uh, statements and policy interests uh, by the president and executive order. Uh, But then there's a broader discussion about what should the rules of the road be on the Internet economy? If we separate out sort of the sort of political blustery about the who's up and down on politics, there's probably a kernel of a debate worth having about how do we get uh, content moderation in the Internet uh, better squared up. And I think that conversation is productive, but not the uh, the blustery side of the the who's up and who's down. But but it is, here's here's the regulatory question when it comes to free speech and 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 all of it, which is this. On Twitter's side, for example, you know, they decided to fact check that initial um, tweet by the president about vote by mail. And you've heard both Twitter and Facebook say, for example, that on certain issues, they will fact check things, especially when it comes to what they think of as voter suppression or electoral issues or health and and people's own danger to themselves. So in this instance, Twitter takes the position that the president's comments effectively amount to potentially uh, some form of voter suppression or, or uh, interference in, in an election. Facebook takes the position effectively that the president is making an argument that potentially vo- vote by mail could have fraud involved in it. Um, and you're seeing both sides of that argument. Should the government be the one to be the arbiter? Should the companies be the arbiter who, who, who is supposed to be the judge and the jury? Well, you're raising the reason why there's a healthy debate. Uh, the provision of the law that we're describing that allows us to have this debate is called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And the principle of it was that we would provide liability from these content uh, platforms that are basically uh, enabling the kind of discourse that we're seeing. And they have the authority to develop their own rules of the road for their own terms of service. And so you see diverging opinions. That's sort of the nature of the uh, the immunity shield. The other side of the law, in my view, had been that we were hopeful, I would imagine, for policymakers engaged in this debate, that the social media community would come together to reach some more broad consensus about the standards by which certain actions may be taken. So the debate about is Twitter right or is Facebook wrong may be a little bit off from the broader conversation. Should the community reach consensus with stakeholder input so that the government itself doesn't have to micromanage the industry? And it's the lack of action but, but part of, caused the tension. Right. But but part of the conundrum may very well be that that you want a market, if you will. Maybe you want a market where Twitter makes one decision and Facebook makes another or no? Well, you think well, that should be one one decision across the board? Oh, no, no, no. That's why the government dictating the micro details of this is very complicated. The idea that the industry may reach consensus. Uh, let's take a less uh, politically controversial but more public health oriented issue. If someone were to uh, post comments around, say, suicide or other, uh, you know, sort of difficult challenges on a personal level, there may be agreement amongst the group to say, hey, let's all agree that will post a notice that you should contact the suicide hotline so we can connect people to services. So there may be areas where there's agreement and consensus 
and some some uh, mechanism for feedback to say, hey, is that the right thing or the wrong thing? So these multi-stakeholder groups that have come together to really help regulate the internet, they're working in parts of the internet economy. Content moderation hasn't really gotten off the ground. Well, uh, let, let me throw a different one at you. So Facebook took down, the president of Brazil had, had posted something to Facebook saying that hydrochloroquine was scientifically proven to work. And it was the, it was the wording that I think Facebook objected to, the scientifically proven component. The president, our president, President Trump, of course, has encouraged people to take hydrochloroquine, says he takes it himself, and Facebook chose not to take that down. Now, some people could say that's a distinction without a difference. Others could say it's a nuance or they're looking at these words. I think the real question is whether you want one organization effectively to be overseeing all of this uh, or whether you want to see these things being done individually. And the other piece of it is, is it about censorship, meaning taking things down or when you when you, quote unquote, fact check something and add add a line to it or add a link with more information or related information or what have you, how the public and public policy people should think about that? Well, look, the public policy people have to stay. There was really several dimensions to this. One is if there are criminal actions uh, that may come from these uh, sort of social media platforms, then there is a higher level of scrutiny about the actions that are taken. Uh, when it comes to content moderation goals, each platform does compete on what they want the user experience to look like when they choose to uh, remove accounts and how they choose to handle individual content. We do want a flourishing economy so that not the two uh, large platforms you've identified, but the new ones that haven't yet emerged have a place to bring their new offerings to market. So you want that that uh, uh, liability shield, so to speak, but you're hopeful right. that some consistent uh, uh, terms of service and that they're equally applied. Now, there may be certain questions that can a, can a group of stakeholders come together to say, this is the bar. Let's meet the bar. Let's set your terms to be consistent with that bar. And if you don't hold yourself uh, accountable to those same uh, terms that you've put out, we have existing rules in the books, like the Federal Trade Commission, that could say that you've been deceitful to your customers. Right. So there are uh, mechanisms in place to build some uh, a constraint, if you will, on a completely free form uh, internet economy. And the, co- the goal to me is getting this, this sort of consensus process going, maybe a path to get a little bit more of the temperature down on what's happening on the uh, harmful content debate. Based on what you've seen in this executive order, what do you think the liability long term will be for these companies? Because investors are, of course, looking at these companies and saying to themselves, is this a sideshow? Is this meaningful? How should they think about it? Uh, I would view the executive order as a political statement, uh, not a particular piece of uh, uh, regulatory text that's going to move the market. Uh, My perception here is that the president's basically directing the government to make an argument uh, to the regulators, in this case, uh, some combination of the FCC and the FTC to get moving. And so it's more of a a statement of principle in my language than it would be uh, law. So so I would not view this particular set of it really just opens up a conversation about how do we strike the balance. Let's not forget, the Internet economy is driving growth in the U.S. uh, uh, GDP. And that's for a reason, because we have these sort of baseline principles for how we want to regulate the Internet. And they're working. Uh, We've been consistently outperforming the the world on our Internet economy performance. So we don't want to lose our strength. We want to make sure that we build on progress. And that, to me, is facilitating that next chapter getting the industry to step up to do more within the authorities of Section 230 is what I meant by saying 
this is an opportunity for us to continue the debate. It's not just the government. Anish, Anish, want to thank you uh, for the conversation. Uh, Hope you come on back. It's uh, it's not going away. We're going to be talking about this a lot, I imagine, over the next several weeks and months. Next on Squawk Pod, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan has insight on consumers and the crisis. If you look at our customers' checking balances, uh, say under you know, $5,000 and under average balance that they're running before the crisis, they're actually up 30 or 40 percent in average balances in their accounts today versus 12, 13 weeks ago. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. The head of the nation's second largest bank says that the U.S. economy could be starting to recover from the effects of the coronavirus shutdown. Bank of America's CEO Brian Moynihan has a key perch into the state of the American consumer. About half of U.S. households have some kind of account with B of A, and it is the largest small business lender in the country. So from PPP to stimulus payments to who can afford to pay their monthly bills, Bank of America knows it all. And the bank has also promised its 200,000 employees that there will be no layoffs in 2020. Here's Becky Quick with Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan, who joined us on the phone. Brian, thank you for being with us today. Uh, Becky, it's a pleasure. Good to hear your voice and uh, pleasure to be here. Okay, let's talk about what you're hearing right now, Brian, because I I don't think anybody else has a better read on and how things are going in real time data. Um, what are you seeing right now, just in terms of consumer spending? I know you said yesterday that uh, for Memorial Day weekend, consumer spending was only down by about ten percent. How how does that match up with what you've seen over recent weeks? Sure, Becky. If you think this is a healthcare crisis, as you see various uh, adjustments by government authorities to the health care crisis and the human crisis, you're starting to see the economy come out of the hole. So if you think about the months during the year, we started off strong this year with spending January last year to January of this year up 10 percent, 9 percent, February is 10 percent, March was 7 percent as the impact of the virus came. April was 30, 27 to 30 percent down. And what you're seeing in May is five to ten percent down, and so you're seeing us come out of the, uh, you know, out of the depths of where we were in April, and that's good news. And that's due to two things: one is just people are starting to spend more money as the stimulus hits generally, and then more, more importantly, in terms of the numbers moving faster, is the impact of the opening of various economies. I would assume a lot of that has to do with how Americans are feeling about their jobs. So many have been furloughed. So many have been laid off. Uh, Now, many of the people who have been furloughed think that they will be called back. Uh, Do you have any kind of insight into whether these are temporary layoffs, whether these are are long term? And and I, I bring this up because Jason Furman was with us yesterday and he said he thinks unemployment will still be around 11 percent come Christmas time. Yeah, I think most economists uh, have the unemployment numbers, you know, peaking uh, somewhere during this quarter and then starting to fall, but stay elevated through year end and even in the next year. And our economists at Bank of America have the same uh, take on it. The interesting question is, it's been very different in this uh, 
situation has been the shutdown of the economy was immediate, and it was parts of the economy which never shut down. For example, doctor's office or dentist's office, things that just generally go on in a recession-proof, as they call it. So we're in a re- we went into a recessionary environment, and these people shut down. They're reopening, and that's good news. So that'll bring back parts of the economy. It'll be slower for travel and things like that to come back, some of the retail spaces. I know you ran a spot on Disney opening up. You're starting to see people open, but it'll be slower on those two parts of the economy than it is on parts of the economy that uh, are in strong demand, a doctor's office or dentist's office for people with delayed appointments that they'll go back out and start going to the dentist again. So I think you have to think about the unemployment impact. The real difference, though, is the amount of stimulus that's gone in to the economy is much different than in past crises. And so if you look at our customers' checking balances, uh, say under you know, $5,000 and under average balance that they're running before the crisis, they're actually up 30 or 40 percent in average balances in their accounts today versus 12, 13 weeks ago. That means that the stimulus is still in their accounts and it's going to be spent, and part of it's been spent, but there's more to come. And, and we'll see if that stimulus can hold on long enough to the reemployment come back in and the confidence continue to build. I think that's part of the question, though. What happens when some of those stimulus measures run out, when some of the unemployment benefits uh, run out, too? Do you, what do you think on that front? What would happen, let's say, around August if some of those measures are, are no longer continued? Well, that's going to come back to, you know, the American economy especially is driven by, uh, you know, consumer spending. And, and as you think about this, it's going to come back to this question of the consumer spending picking up and the demand for services and especially in the service side economy picking up and as we move through the year and how fast we can cross that river to where there's enough spending to reemploy the people. So I think yeah, that's going to be the debate. If you think about the stimulus that's in the economy, we think basically as best we can tell, there's still about 30 percent of the EIP payments in our customers' accounts that have not been spent. Uh, the unemployment benefits, you know, have been strong, and Congress and the administration put in a strong benefit that ends at the end of July. Whether they do something again, we'll have to see play out over the next few weeks. But, you know, there is a issue that, uh, you know, in terms of currently the cash flow is strong. The unemployment numbers are you know, very high and very uh, concerning. But on the other hand, if spending picks up, that'll help drive the economy back to where these people will get jobs back, and we'll see this play out. It, there'll be a tension how long it can last and does it last long enough, but right now it seems to be sufficient. I think, if my numbers are correct, you've gotten deferral requests for 1.6 million deferrals, and maybe about 180,000 of those are people asking for deferrals on their mortgages. That number has slowed down. What are you seeing in those numbers? How much has it slowed? How much better is that situation looking? Uh, for something like on our mortgage deferrals, in a Bank of America, we, we're you know, a prime, super prime type of lender, but you've seen the deferrals in our customers' accounts uh, fall dramatically, deferral requests. So we had probably a million in the first couple weeks, first three weeks, and then you know, we've had in the next five, four, five, six weeks after that, you've had a total of a half million. So it's really dropped in the last couple of weeks. It's been in mortgage, for example, you know, very small. And so... Why is that happening? I think people have adjusted, asked for deferrals. They were shocked by what happened. Once they got that deferral, uh, as in, in the mortgage area, 20-odd 20, 20 percent of the people who asked for deferral went ahead and made their payments, which meant they were in a different condition when payment time came than they thought they'd be when they asked for deferral. Likewise, in, in credit card, which is the dominant part of the deferrals, again, about 45 percent made the payment. And, again, I think that's because from the time when – the crisis hit to the time when they had to make the payment, they, they had more cash flow than they might have thought. 
the question of how this plays out will come down to you know what's the reemployment factor that's going to come into the economy over the next couple months as economies open and jobs get restarted and then people can make payments. But right now, we feel pretty good that the deferrals have slowed way down. We stepped up as a company, and our industry stepped up and basically offered people forbearance, the ability to defer the payments and put them on the back end of a mortgage and not make the credit card payments, et cetera. And that happened across the industry, and I think that slowed down across the industry also. Hey, Brian, one of the real issues people have wondered is what happens in, in retail and in restaurants where they didn't have any revenue coming in in a lot of places. And as a result, many of those retailers or restaurants were not paying their rent. You wonder what the ripple implications are of that and, and where the buck stops with that. Um, what have you seen on that front and w- what happens in terms of the loan losses you might anticipate? If you look at the retail uh, spending at restaurants, the you know, quick service type restaurants continued to grow. Uh, the non-quick service type restaurants fell you know, 30, 40, 50 percent. They're back up to where they're down 30 percent, and they were growing week after week, even before they started opening. So it's going to be a race for some of those restaurants. Can they get open fast enough to get the revenue started to to, to make it in the PPP process? As you know, there's great debate about does it fit for the restaurant environment, and there's proposed changes to make it work better for those those types of companies. When you go to retail generally, clothing and things like that, it's been interesting. We've, we've seen spending on clothing stores up 50% month over month, so people are starting to broaden out their spending again, as I said before. Immediately after the you know, shutdowns, people basically went out and bought provisions in big, big numbers, so you've seen some of the uh, the interviews you've had for people whose numbers are very strong in March and April in terms of same-store sales because of just that provisioning. What you're seeing now is that consumer spending is broadening out, still coming off a low bottom in the case of clothing and in the case of restaurants, but starting to move up. And it'll just be a question of how fast it can move up and will it move up fast enough for some of these companies to be able to make it and then the supplements from PPP and how that will work. And we'll see that play out. Let, let's talk about the PPP a little bit, because I think this is an issue that's been politicized pretty handily. Um, you've given out 320,000 PPP loans, if, if, if that's correct. I think those were the latest numbers I'd seen in about $26 billion. I think the majority of those went to small businesses. There have been lots of complaints, and uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, others are wanting to investigate whether the big banks put uh, bigger clients first or their own clients first. And maybe you can address that, talk a little bit about that, what you have done, what you've seen? There was quite a validation around the first phase in terms of the shutdown of the process, how the process worked, how the, you know, the administration around it, uh, people getting ready. The CARES Act is you know, two months and two days old, and in two, you know, which is not that old. And yet, on the other hand, $500 billion has been put through the PPP process by the industry. And the large banks have done that. In the fir- from the first phase to the second phase, so first phase closed, the shutdown and reopening, we went from 10,000 uh, completed PPP loans to 320,000. So as a machine at Bank of America is, and my colleagues and the other banks had the same thing, as the machines got turning and the SBA got ready to receive the numbers of volumes, what happened is what people wanted. The average loan size has come down, so was around 80,000. The 98% of the uh, borrowers are, have less than 100 employees, 80-plus percent have less than 10 employees. And so and you're seeing it. We're still getting 1,000 apps a day, and the businesses are smaller and smaller. So I think the intent of everybody to help small businesses has been served by the fact the program stayed open. The volume of applications have gone, uh, continued to go up. The actual loan balance, the balance is extended, actually went down as you know repayments came in and people 
thought twice about it, so you saw it drop back down. And so you're seeing this thing continue to broaden out. There, there was concerns about the types of things you talked about. I think if people just let the clock run and let the program continue uh, and they make some of the adjustments they're talking about to help with some certain types of industries, I think people it's going to do exactly what it's supposed to do, which is $510 billion that's gone out on the street in basically a month and a half. Wow. Um, let's talk about loan losses, potentially. We have Mike Mayo on, and he thinks the big banks will be facing loan losses of about three times the, the normal. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. It, you know, we put up a, in the first quarter, we had charge-offs of a billion and a little over a billion dollars, which basically is what we always have. And then we put up an additional provision on top of that to total over $4 billion. We still earn 40 cents a share and twice our dividend and have a strong ability to pay the dividend. As you think about the second quarter, uh, April was the depth of this thing so far. Knock on wood that that holds. You, you know, you'll, you'll see us adjust in the second quarter, the industry and ourselves to the con- conditions at the end of the quarter, and, and put up uh, potentially more reserves. But you know, I think the real question is, you know, it's the tension of the unemployment numbers that you talked about, which are way too high, and we've got to, as a society, get them down. The spending patterns, which will create demand, which help bring people back to work, whether it's home construction, whether it's retail or whatever, restaurants, whatever, you're going to see that tension. And as that happens, you're going to see, you know, the loan losses fall out of that. But we feel very good that we have, you know, put up $17 billion in loan loss reserves. We reserve very strong. We have a great credit book and we feel good about where we are. And there could be losses, but that's the intended outcome when, in a sense, uh, the the predicted outcome when you have this kind of unemployment and this kind of uh, 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 demand destruction on the uh, commercial side. Hey, Brian, I do want to salute your leadership in terms of what you've said about your own company and layoffs in 2020. You've said that there will be none, which I think is pretty bold. There are plenty of companies that are going to be looking at this as an opportunity to kind of trim the fat and and, and do layoffs and go ahead with those things. You've got 200,000 employees. How do you not lay off anybody in 2020? And, and what happens in 2021? Well, the, the issue really is that we've been open every day and operating. So uh, you know, our industry and our company has been open. We've had branches open every day. We've had uh, you know, tens of millions of customers come in during the COVID period, you know, and call us during the COVID period, made 5 million outbound calls. So we, we took right from the start an employee-centric, you know, centric, customer-centric view of how we're going to solve this crisis. So we had to be open every day. We're an essential business. We had to function every day. Our branches had to be open, and we had to be open to support the capital markets and the $70 billion of commercial loans that came in and the institutional money movement. So the idea of no layoffs was, you know, basically to make our employees feel comfortable that they could go to work every day and not have to worry about themselves. And on top of that, you know, we extend our child care benefits. Basically, we give our teammates $100 to pay someone to take care of their kids so they can be effective at work, even when their kids are off of school and summer in camps and daycare centers and things like that. We've extended that uh, through the end of uh, another month, and that basically goes out and allows them to work. We Even people who are high risk that we took off the line right away because of the risk involved in the situation, we have, you know, we've been paying them. We're now redeploying them in call center environments and things. But for for four or five weeks, people were just, they could not work because they didn't, their job was not the kind of job that could be to work from home. Um, so we, we basically took the employee-centered view saying, you know, we want to make our employees comfortable. What's been interesting is our attrition obviously slowed way down. And so when we get to 21 and people are, things are open and stuff, we'll, we'll work it through. But I think we've had great expense management in our company and we'll continue to manage expense as well. But we'll let attrition and other factors work as the world reopens and the economy recovers.
Hey, Brian, we have to go, but very quickly, how many people were online banking now versus before this whole thing started, and what's the future of the branches? Well, the future of the branches is important. Four or 500,000 people came in yesterday to the branches, but digital activities increased. And the most interesting thing, we're at 39, 40 million digital users. Uh, digital sales have increased as a percent. The raw number of digital sales year over year is up. So you're seeing an increased digitization, but that was a trend that was happening sort of uh, ever. But the most interesting stat is the seniors and boomers, uh, of all the new users of digital services during the COVID shutdown crisis, they're about 20-odd percent, 22, 23 percent of the new users, which means new people who have never used these wonderful services that we have have now used them. And so that's a good that's a good add to our base. And so we have the biggest digital platform, and the amount of things going on is huge. But the interesting thing is we moved a group of people who may, over the next three, four, five years, convince themselves to do it, but they went and did it because the necessity of time, and that's good news for us. Brian, I want to thank you for your time today. It's really great talking to you. Bank of America CEO, Brian Moynihan. Thank you, Becky. Squawk Pod will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by... We finish each other's sentences. Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. I'm still scared of people, what people think of me. I can tell you that. I'm, I'm fearful and scared. <laughs> <laughs> As you can see. God, we're all so nice. Right? I love you guys. Uh, I'll miss you this weekend, to be honest with you. Um, maybe we could have a... Can we Zoom or something? We'll see you back here on Monday. Virtual margarita. Uh, you know what? I, we, we occasionally do do the Zoom on Friday nights. <laughs> right. Maybe this is one of Let's those Fridays. Let's do it after drinks. We're really like, Everybody can come here. Andrew, come here. Like I told you, Squawk Box every morning. Right. Three hours, Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> no food, no football, and thank God no alcohol. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. 
absolutely, positively FedEx. 